You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. It has been a few weeks since our last study of, uh, of Hebrews, so maybe we need a little bit of a, a, a recap. The author, just to remind you, is talking to Jews, and he's been talking to them about distinctly Jewish things, such as priests. And you might remember that the author has begun to present Jesus as a superior high priest, which, if you think about it, would have been a particularly difficult thing to understand as a Jew, mainly because Jesus, well, wasn't a priest, (laughs) that he didn't act as a priest, he didn't take on that role, he didn't physically function as one, and so this would be a difficult um, a difficult topic to embark upon, yet this topic of, of the priesthood of Jesus is a central theme of the book. And so he's going to talk about priestly uh, functions and as Jesus as priest for some chapters. And so this is an important thing. And last time we looked at the qualifications of a high priest and how, how Jesus met every one of those qualifications. And in fact, he exceeded them. If you want to just think about those qualifications, bring them to mind. We, we, we looked at the fact that, number one, well, he had to be a, a man, a, a human being. No angel could be a, a priest. He had to be a man, someone who could understand human nature. And so Jesus certainly was a man. He took on human nature. And in chapter 2, verse 17 of Hebrews, we were told that in all things he had to be made like his brethren. He had to be made like a man. He had to because he had to fill that role of a high priest. He also had to be a a compassionate man. The the priest had to understand the weaknesses of of man. And Jesus certainly is a compassionate high priest. We were told in in chapter 4, verse 15, that we we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so he, he understands our failures. He understands our weaknesses. He lived as a man. He, he, he was tired. He was weak. He was in pain. He experienced sorrow and grief. He understood those uh, things. We also looked at that one of the qualifications of that priest is that he had to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people, but he also had to offer a sacrifice for himself, didn't he? His own sin. That's the one thing that sort of separates Jesus there is that he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He himself was the sacrifice. He himself was the sacrifice for the sins of others. In fact, he was the perfect sacrifice. And in chapter 5, verse 8, we looked at this last time we were in Hebrews, is that said this, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He was not made perfect in the sense that he, he needed improving Jesus' uh, nature didn't need to change. His person didn't need to change. He, he became perfect in his human experience, his experience as suffering. And he became perfect in the sense that he completed that suffering all the way to the end. And what was the end for him? It was death. And so that death, that perfect sacrifice, brought about the eternal salvation. Eternal. Not just a temporary covering as the other high priests brought them. They'd have to be back one year later to do the same thing over again, but not Jesus. He offered once for all a sacrifice that offered eternal salvation. And we also learned that he had to be appointed by God. You couldn't run for office. You couldn't put your name forward. It wasn't a democratic thing. He had to be appointed, chosen by God, and certainly Jesus was. And it is on this point, that last point, that the author mentions this mysterious figure. You might remember Melchizedek. Look at it in verse 10, that Jesus was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus has been appointed there, we, we, we see, by God as a high priest, but not according to the order of Aaron. That would sort of be the thing you would expect to see because Aaron was the the first high priest. But the Aaronic priesthood ended. That ended with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Jesus has been appointed by God according to the order of Melchizedek. And we'll learn more about Melchizedek later. But we learned that he was a priest and a king. He fulfilled two offices which were never uh, filled by one person before. And in Genesis 14, 18... This is what it said. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. So he was a priest and a king. And so Jesus is both priest and king because he's in the order, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. And also, 
this priesthood is an eternal one. You see that in verse 6 of chapter 5. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author is only really touching the surface of this subject of Melchizedek, and he now plans on explaining the significance of this idea, the significance of, of Jesus's Melchizedekian priesthood, okay? Um, and he wants to go into greater detail, but he won't do that until chapter 7. We're still in the chapter 5. Something makes him pause here. It's really important to understand the context and where he was going. He wants to talk about this guy, Melchizedek. But before expounding on that very difficult topic, he feels compelled instead to issue another warning. You might remember, I told you at the beginning, there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. He's going along, and then he stops, and he issues a warning. We've seen two so far. The first was in chapter 2. Do you remember the warning there? Don't drift away. Don't drift away. When you hear the truth, when the truth comes to you, anchor yourself to that truth because you could just sort of glide on by, slip on by the, the, the harbor of salvation, sort of using those nautical terms. Anchor yourself to truth. He says, don't neglect salvation there in chapter 2. Chapter 3, the other warning came to us, don't harden your hearts. You might remember that, the hard-hearted in that example, and he gave us a graphic illustration of the Israelites in the wilderness who hardened their heart to God. Those people did not enter God's rest, and the hard-hearted today do not enter God's rest. So the warning was very, very clear. Now, these few verses that we're about to look at at the end of chapter 5 really introduce to us the third warning. We're not really getting into the third warning. We won't till next week because it's a massive thing. And I have to warn you, chapter 6 is a very difficult passage, okay? And now you're all going to run home, and you're all going to read through it to see how difficult, but you'll see why. Not all commentators agree on really what the overall meaning is. And so I think these introductory verses really set up the, the problem for us. And if we remember who the audience is and remember the context and what he's wanting to talk about, I think it becomes a little clearer. So you're going to have to stick with me on this. Why does the author pause? What is he concerned about? Why does he stop really almost in mid-thought to change the subject to that of a warning? Go back and look at it. Look at verses 9 to 11 so we can kind of see the flow here. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, we stopped in verse 10 last week right there. He, you can clearly see, wants to explain more about this Melchizedek. He says, I have much to say, but it would be hard to explain to them because they have become dull of hearing. Boy, how, how, how would you like to be called that? Well, maybe I should tell you what that means. That word dull in the Greek, nothros, is slow, sluggish, lazy, uh, uh, slothful. That's the idea there. And incidentally, that word appears again in verse 12 of, of this chapter, well, chapter 6, actually. We'll go down to verse 12 and look at it. It says that you do not become sluggish. You see that? There it's used as sluggish. Here it's used as dull, but it's the same Greek word. So this word sort of frames in the entire thing, which is why this is sort of the problem and the theme of it. It's the only two places in all the New Testament where this word is, is used. Dull of hearing means lazy or sluggish than in the ears. That's the idea. The problem is that the people have become spiritually lazy. That's it. It speaks of their spiritual inclination. They had become unreceptive to spiritual truth. And you know, this is just true. I've seen this over the years. People can sit in church for year and after year after year, and they can hear God's word week after week after week. They can attend faithfully as church members. They can be active in church ministry and still never really be committed to Christ. It's true. And might remember when we introduced the entire book of Hebrews in the very first week, I mentioned to you that one of the keys to understanding the whole book that really makes it a little bit more 
easy to go, grasp is that you have to understand that there are several groups of people in the audience, different peoples that he, he's speaking to that we find in every church. Any church you go to in the world is going to have these three groups of people. The first is, well, true believers, all right? Every church would have true believers. And I would say this is the invisible church. This is the church God knows. God knows the hearts of his, his people. And I think the majority of Hebrews is, a, is, is aimed at this group of, of people. They're, they're born again, congregation of Jewish believers. But just like the Corinthians, they're immature. They're, they're too mature to deal with all the difficulties that are coming. Because remember, they're under persecution because they've left Judaism to embrace Christ. And even their own brethren are persecuting them because of that. So they're experiencing all this. And, and so some of them are in danger of going back into the standards, going back into the patterns of Judaism. But listen, those are not necessarily in danger of losing their salvation. They're just in danger of, of being drawn back into these, these patterns and these things. And, and the real danger really was in confusing the gospel with, with legalism, uh, with, with ceremony, which would weaken their faith and it would weaken their, their testimony. The second group of people you might remember are, are intellectual believers. And believers is sort of a tricky word I, I used there. They're the people that understand the gospel, believe the gospel, uh, but they have not made that personal commitment to Christ. Um, the last two warnings that we've looked at, I think, have been primarily addressed to them. That, that they were the ones that were in danger of neglecting salvation. Uh, they're, they're in danger of not escaping the judgment that is to come because they had failed to embrace Christ. They were the ones who, hold, who were told to beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So I think that group has been addressed primarily. And then we know the third group, and those, those are the non-believers, people who haven't believed anything uh, about it, don't buy into it at all. And those will be addressed a little bit later on in the book. But when we approach Hebrews with the understanding that these groups are being addressed, the letter becomes more understandable. It's not always to just one group of people because a church is made up of many people. When I say church, I mean just the church body. I don't mean the, the believers because God knows who are truly his. Now, remember, too, th- these people, many of them in the church, are thinking of turning back to Judaism. The author has been attempting this whole time to engage their hearts, engage their minds. He's been trying to, to convince them through some difficult arguments about the dangers of going back. And those, those arguments were based on pointing them towards Christ, that he is superior to what? Anything they would want to go back to, which for a Jew would be what? Anything in the Old Testament, okay? That is key, honestly, for understanding this thing. It, he's, they're in danger of, he says, falling away, which is the real big warning of all of chapter 6. We've been sort of saying them all the same way. Don't drift away. Don't harden your heart. This would be don't fall away. It comes from chapter 6, verse uh, 6. Don't deviate from the path. Don't uh, turn onto the path of error. And we're really going to take a deeper look at that warning next week. But today, we're going to look at the problem that can lead to the falling away. Remember, the problem that would lead someone to not enter God's rest was an unbelieving heart a hard heart. Well, the problem that can lead to someone falling away that he is pointing out here is spiritual laziness. Now, a lot of Bibles just have a little title on top of chapters, and mine has this spiritual immaturity. Maybe yours says that as well. But I want to tell you, I I think we need to take that with a grain of salt. Someone added spiritual immaturity there. It certainly is a part of it, but it goes deeper than that. So we're going to look today at what the problem is of spiritual laziness, and that's the title of the sermon. We're just looking at these four verses, verse 11 through 14. Let me read through the passage completely, and then we'll jump into it. Now remember, he ends with speaking of Melchizedek, and then verse 11 says, "...of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God." And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for your word before us today. We recognize, Lord, that we are 
we're embarking into a difficult area. Yeah, Lord, we, 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 we understand that, and Lord, we recognize, as we do in all of your word, that we always need the help of the teacher, the, the spirit. Lord, we pray your spirit would be with us today. Guide us into truth. Help us to understand and grasp these things, Lord, because we want to know you better. We want to understand the, the warnings that are coming to this group of believers, these, this, this church, because, Lord, we are a church. And there are certainly uh, people with all kinds of different backgrounds in our midst, even today. And so, Lord, we just pray that your Spirit would illuminate truth to us, that you would speak to our hearts, prepare our hearts for the truth that you have for us, Lord, that we might understand it and, Lord, apply it to our lives and live godly lives for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's just jump into this, shall we? Just rip off the bandage quick. All right. Well, verse 11, spiritual laziness is gradual. It's the first point I'm going to make. Spiritual laziness is a gradual thing. And he really, he makes this point here. He says, of whom we have much to say, again, speaking of Melchizedek, hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So remember the author, he's, he's finishing thoughts regarding all that he wants to teach them regarding Melchizedek. He says, yeah, I have much to say, but it's going to be hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. Notice that word. You have become dull of hearing. They were not always dull of hearing. That had become like this. Spiritual laziness is not something that just happens overnight. This is something that takes place slowly, even gradually. This is obvious as they would have had to have been very excited about Christianity, about Christ at some earlier point because they left Judaism and endured persecution to pursue Christ. So there had to be at some point that initial excitement, but that had worn off, persecution had come, that had continued, they become disenchanted, they become disheartened. Don't you meet people like that? Of course you do. Let's just be real. People get disenchanted about Christianity, and I think this group of people are the ones described in chapter 6, verse 4, who have once been enlightened who had tasted the heavenly gift. And I think Jesus described people like this when he told a very important parable. I want to take us to it. It's a very familiar parable to you. It's uh, Matthew 13. So turn to Matthew 13 with me. Keep your marker in Hebrews because obviously we're going to come back to that. But Matthew 13, I want to take you to. And in your Bibles, it's often titled the parable of the sower. I think it's more appropriately titled, titled the parable of the soils. It's about the soil that the seed is falling into, not so much about the sower. But the parable of the soils comes to us in, in Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to read the actual parable to you, starting in verse 3. Matthew chapter 13, verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." And so Jesus tells that parable, and remember, the disciples then ask a question, why do you talk to the people in parables? We'll look at that in a little bit later. And then Jesus explains to them the meaning of the parable. Look ahead to verse 18. Let's look at the explanation from Jesus' own mouth. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside, or in the parable, the seed the birds ate. Verse 20, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. In the parable, that's the, the seed that is scorched by the sun. 
Verse 22, now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful in the the parable, the thorns are what choke out the seed. Verse 23, but he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. Now this is going to be a parable that will help us through the entire uh, entire chapter six as well. So keep this in mind. But which of this, uh, these seeds or these soils do you think is the group that Jesus is sort of referring to here? I would say that it's the group where the, uh, that the seed fell on stony places. He who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He endures only for a little while for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now that word stumbles is scandalizo, and it means to be enticed to sin or to fall away. These then, those seeds in that soil are not genuine believers. They were excited for a bit, but when the going got tough, they fell away. They were scorched. I think they're the same individuals who understand the gospel intellectually. That's why they receive it with joy in a sense, but there's not a heart response to it. There's nothing that connects the mind to the heart, that connects the mind and and makes a root in their lives. There's no spiritual nourishment, and therefore they produce no fruit. Let me just ask you, how long can a plant last without a root? Not very long. So the longer they neglect so great a salvation, as the warning came to us in chapter 2, the more dull their spiritual hearing becomes. The initial excitement, the initial interest, that fades away, and now they're in danger of falling away because they're no longer interested in spiritual truths. They don't want to uh, pursue it, and because they don't, they don't produce fruit. Now, I know I'm talking about fruit here, and it's not necessarily mentioned right in our verses here, but it will be if you kind of peek down at verse 8 of chapter Uh, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 6. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. You see, it does apply into the entire uh, theme here. And Jesus certainly said in, in John 15, 4, he said this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. You see, there has to be an actual relationship with Christ. You have to be connected to the root. If you're not connected to the root, you don't bear any fruit. That's the idea here. So that seed on the stony places that had no root, they had no fruit, and therefore they died a slow, gradual death. The sun just scorched them away. You see, it's a slow, it's a gradual thing. Going back to our passage, he says, I want to explain these things to you, but you've become lazy You become dull of hearing these things no longer get you excited. Yeah, I sit in church every week and just hear the same thing over. No, excited about God's word, excited about spiritual things, pursuing Christ, discipling others, all those things. None of those things are happening with these people. Which brings us to the second point. Spiritual laziness is unproductive. You don't produce anything from a spiritual lazy person. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now the author here speaks to them about time. Do you see that? By this time, you ought to be teachers. They had apparently sat under solid biblical instruction long enough that by this time they should have been, they should have been teachers. Now, this, this has nothing to do, so you can see this, nothing to do with intellect. It has to do with time. There does come a point in which a person who claims to be a believer should, should exhibit spiritual maturity, understanding, and the test is that, that by this time, they ought to be teaching others. There should be this, this desire to want to disciple others. I don't think this means that everyone should be a pastor or an elder and able to teach a congregation. Because we're certainly, well, the Bible certainly warns uh, against even placing a new convert into a position of spiritual leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's listing the qualifications for a spiritual leader and in the church. And he says in verse 6 that he cannot be a novice, not a novice 
lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. That word novice means new convert, newly planted. So not everyone is to be a teacher in that sense, but everyone should be able to explain the first principles of the oracles of God, the basics to others. That word first principles is stoikion. It means the fundamentals, the primary uh, principles. And here it refers to the fundamental principles which make up the oracles of God, he says, which is the word of God, which for these Hebrews would be what? The Old Testament. Now, this is key. This is key in understanding this. The Old Testament are the fundamentals for understanding the gospel. Do you know that? Those are the basics. Those are the ABCs. That's the the main thing. The plain things are the main things. The main things are the plain things. Alistair Begg says that. Those are the main things. And he's saying to them, you need to go back to primary school, and you need someone to teach you the basics again. You see the word again there? You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. So what are those things? Well, some of them are listed in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. We'll get to it next week. Look at them. Therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. This is all encompassed in the Old Testament. It's not the basis of the gospel. I'm going to show you that next week, and I think that's where people can get confused. These are Jewish believers. They don't need the basics of the gospel again. They don't understand their Old Testament. They don't understand the law and what it points to. How do we know if this is true? Who is the author talking about? Some guy named Melchizedek, who is a high priest in the Old Testament. He says, I want to talk to you more about this. He says, but I don't think you even get it. Do you see that, folks? I don't think you understand, if I went further to this, that you would get it because the author, he wants to tell him, listen, Melchizedek, he is an Old Testament type. Do you know what a type is? I hope you do. He's a type. He's somebody in the Old Testament who represents a type of Christ, who foreshadows Christ. If a Jew is thinking about abandoning Christ, they've obviously forgotten uh, about what the law says. They've forgotten the Old Testament. Do you see that, folks? That's the idea here. The Old Testament ordinances, the ceremonies, the washings, the rituals, the the sacrifices, the holy days, all of those things, those were shadows. They were copies of the things to come in the new covenant through Christ. Let me just show it to you in Hebrews. talks a lot about this. Go forward to Hebrews chapter 8. Look at verses 4 to 5. Hebrews chapter 8, just a couple pages up. For if he were on earth, this is verse 4, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Do you see that? The Old Testament priests, they were what? A copy and shadow of heavenly things. Uh, the Old Testament tabernacle. What was that? Oh, that was according to the pattern of heavenly things. Look ahead to Hebrews chapter 10. We see it here again. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Listen, if a Jew understands that the Old Testament sacrifices doesn't give them a righteous standing before God, if they understand that, then why do they want to go back to it? Well, they want to go back to it because they don't understand it. Do you see that? They're in danger of going back to things that don't give them a perfect standing. And he's saying those are just a shadow. They're just a copy. They foreshadow things to come. Paul even says it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. He says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So what are those? Those are all the Old Testament things, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is in Christ. See, those things foreshadowed Christ. And if those things are understood, then or not understood, you can't understand Christ. The Old Testament, you guys, is the alphabet. It's the ABCs. It's the, it's the, it's the kid's picture book, okay, for people to understand What comes next? You have to understand the pictures. You have to get the ABCs down before you can understand the deep truths. Now, 
now the reality has come. The reality has come in Christ, and so we don't need the shadows. We don't need the copies anymore. We don't need those types. They're all replaced. Paul talks about that in Galatians because he's dealing with the same thing with the law. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, he says, But before faith came, this is faith in Christ, this is the gospel, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. When faith has come, so the tutor is to lead us to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we don't need the tutor anymore. That was the law. That was our, our primary school teacher. And once we understand the basics, then we can move forward to the harder understand things. And those Jews, he's saying, you still need a tutor. You still haven't understood those things. You don't grasp your own law. So these are not people who've, who've never heard the truth. He says they need to learn these things again. These aren't people who, who are new to the church. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. They, they're not even people who have a slow intellect. It doesn't have anything to do with their intelligence. He says, you're dull of hearing. You're spiritually lazy. What is really the author concerned about here? He's concerned about their wavering mind. We're thinking about leaving Christianity, thinking about going back to Judaism, which calls into question their understanding of not the deep things, the basics. If you want to go back, then you obviously don't grasp that, that those things just pointed to somebody else. And they should have been firm in those things. They remind me of those parables that Jesus taught. And I told you I'd mentioned this. Do you remember why he taught the parables? Jesus explained after he said that parable of the, the, the soils, why he taught that way. In Matthew 13, verse 13, I have it for you. It says this, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. Verse 15, For the hearts of this people have grown dull, Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. I I love what Jesus makes the main problem here. It isn't the eyes. It isn't the ears. The main problem is the heart. They don't have a hearing problem. Dull hearing is not a hearing problem. Dull hearing is a heart problem. It's not about the hearing. When truth is heard, and not internalized in the heart, when it doesn't actually take root, if it's not maintained, your hearing can be lost. You just stop hearing it. And so you become spiritually lazy. It's exactly what's described in 1 Timothy as a seared conscience. I know I mentioned this before, but look at the verse. It's 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, and we're in the latter times, since the time of Christ, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They've rejected the truth for so long, their consciences are, are seared. Their, their spiritual nerves are deadened, is the idea. They're no longer receptive to the truth, and so they can easily fall away. And let me just tell you, any other truth that competes with the gospel of Christ is a doctrine of demons. I don't care what it is. It's brought to them by deceiving spirits. If it, if it goes against the knowledge of God, it's a doctrine of a demon. It lies to you. It's meant to draw you away from the truth. And some of these hearers are in that boat. They are contemplating leaving the faith. The author is urging them forward. He's calling them out of their spiritual stupor. In fact, he goes on to describe their spiritual laziness here as spiritual infancy. Look what it says. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. The author's going to start to use this this illustration with milk and solid food to kind of illustrate the the problem. Notice that they have come to need milk. They've come to need milk. Listen, babies, they're born with a desire for the milk. That's where they're crying, right? They they, they want that, that milk. They don't have to come to a desire for the food. They're born with a desire for the food. Only ones who come to need milk are those who have to go back to childhood. That's what is happening here. And his main point is a, is a massive point. If you are not progressing, you're regressing. I think a lot of people just say, like, I'm just good where I am. Listen, there's no just kind of staying where you are. If you're not drawing near to God, you're falling away from him. And that's what he's worried about here. Laziness, neglect, because they have done that, they've come to need milk again. 
And that's unsatisfactory as far as believers go. You cannot remain a spiritual infant. And there's a third point. Spiritual laziness is unsatisfactory. Look at verse 13. Going back to our passage there. Verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So those who have come to need milk, he calls a babe. Now, this word babe is napios in the Greek, and it means an infant. It is not a newly born believer. In fact, you should know that nowhere in Scripture does the term babe ever refer to a new Christian. You could call a new Christian a babe just by the very fact that they don't know a lot, but Scripture doesn't call a new Christian a babe. They are spiritual infants, and a spiritual infant is defined for us here in this verse as being unskilled in the word of righteousness. Unskilled is aparos. It means inexperienced. Again, it's not a lack of information. That's not the problem. They have the information. They lack, they lack experience. Instead of pursuing Christ, giving themselves fully to him, they become spiritually lazy. They're, they're sluggish. They haven't put their faculties, their spiritual faculties to the test. They can't handle solid food. They can only handle milk. And so they have to go back to the first principles of the oracles of God, he says. And listen, your spiritual system, just like your physical system, that, listen, that has to grow. That has to grow to be, handle, be able to handle more difficult things. But by inexperience, they had not grown at all. In fact, they'd returned to a state of infancy. And listen, spiritual laziness, this is of extreme concern to him. He says, what does it mean here to be unskilled in the word of righteousness? You know, some people wonder if the word of righteousness is doctrinal or if he's talking about the practical side of righteousness. Well, doctrinal would mean that they should have the firm grasp of of the doctrine of imputed righteousness of God. And we talked about that on Good Friday, didn't we? The righteousness of uh, the cross, that we don't have righteousness of our own. We need it from someone else. And so it comes to us from the the, the cross of, of Christ. It's imputed to our account. It's credited to to us. Remember, we looked at those verses. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. It comes to us through faith in in Christ. Is it that? Is he talking about they don't understand that? Or is he talking about the practical side of righteousness, meaning they, they should have put into practice righteous conduct? Well, I would say it's both. It's both of those things. There must be understanding of the doctrine of righteousness first. We have to understand we don't have any of our own. We're sinners, and we need his righteousness. You can't, you, can't, you know, uh, get solid food beyond that. you got to begin with that. They must understand that they're sinful. They're completely unable to furnish righteousness. But in order to feed on God's word, you have to put into practice righteous conduct. You, you, you do. And uh, Peter says that in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, Peter uses the word newborn babes, which is a different word. It's brephos. It means an unborn child or a very, very newborn Child, it's used of the babe that leapt in Elizabeth's womb. But again, he doesn't call new believers newborn babes here. What does he tell? He says, he says, crave the pure milk of the word as a newborn babe. He's not calling them new believers. He's saying you need to crave that, that milk. You need to crave that stuff like, like an infant does. Why? Because you need it. You need the milk. And you know what? God has given to us these wonderful things called cravings desires. You hunger for food and therefore you eat. You know what that does? It keeps you alive. There's other hungers and cravings that keep the human race going. But God has given us those things. He's, he's wired that into humanity so that we can continue to exist and procreate. That's an amazing thing. Can you imagine how much more difficult it would, would be to raise a newborn baby if you had to, to get them a desire to eat? You get hungry. You couldn't do it, right? They're just hungry and your job is just to feed them. Just give them food. And, and you know, it, it, listen, what will happen if they don't eat? They will die. Do you see what he's worried about here? You're going to have growth. Peter's concern in that verse is growth. He says, crave, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The natural response of a true believer to the truth of the word is to crave the truth of the word. When you hear the truth, you want more truth. You can't get enough of the truth, especially if you've tasted it. 
right? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, he says. So real converts who actually tasted God's grace will desire more spiritual milk. It is just an unsatisfactory thing to remain a spiritual infant, to be a babe regarding spiritual matters. One, one really wonders if they ever tasted to begin with that the Lord is a gracious. So a babe, a spiritual infant, is one who's unskilled or inexperienced in matters of righteousness. Now, can, can one be a spiritual babe and be an actual believer? Well, yes, I'm not saying they're, they're not. In fact, that word babe that we're studying in our passage is used in a couple of other key passages. Let me just show you real quick in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We went through the, the book of Corinthians, so you probably remember this, but he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. That word babes is the same word we're looking at in our passage. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. And for where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? The problem with their spiritual growth was, was sin. It was divisions in the church, if you remember. And certainly, according to Peter's passage, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, all those things. Those things should be placed aside in pursuit of spiritual growth. And the Corinthians here, by their envy, strife, divisions, that was hindering their growth. And so he, he calls them babes in Christ. He'd been feeding them milk, not solid food, because they're still not ready for the solid food. But notice that he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual people in that passage. You might remember the Corinthians were spiritual people. He called them saints. They're spiritual people positionally because, uh, uh, because of who they were in Christ, but not because of their sin. They were not spiritually right practically. Practically speaking, they had all the problems in this church, and that was what we, you know, Paul was trying to deal with. That's why he says, I have to address you as carnal, fleshly. You're, you're governed by your human nature. Paul was shaming them in order to stir up zeal to them, right? Pursue spiritual things. Well, the same thing is happening here. He's trying to shame them a bit by giving this horrible picture. You're like a bunch of adults sucking on baby bottles. Can you just picture that? What if we had a whole room of today full of people just, just, all right, guys, we're passing out the bottles today. We've warmed them up. They're good temperature. Enjoy that. Would that be an acceptable thing to walk into a church and see? We would, we would just go, what is happening here? And hopefully leave. It isn't normal and it isn't satisfactory. Of course it's not. Now, you should understand something. The author doesn't think here that this idea of spiritual infancy is something that can be a permanent state for a believer. I hope you're catching this. The entire purpose of the whole book is to warn them about the danger of falling away, to point them to Jesus. In fact, this text segues, as I mentioned, to one of the most severe warnings in all of the New Testament. It's chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Just look at it. For it is impossible says, impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put them to an open shame. You see, the danger of spiritual infancy here is of slipping away into apostasy. You leave the truth altogether. So there's not any thought or even regard for the notion that one can just sip on a milk bottle their whole life and expect to just walk in to heaven. This is not the idea here. One's either drawing near to God or falling away from him. Spiritual laziness is unsatisfactory because the very purpose of the church, the reason why we're here, is to grow into maturity together. Now, someone's going to say, hold on, we're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. Yes, we are. What do we do with those disciples? We're supposed to grow them into full maturity. Let me take you there, Ephesians chapter 4. This is the purpose of the church. Paul says this is why we have pastors, prophets, teachers. This is, this is the very purpose of it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As believers function in the church body, in accordance with their gifts, the whole body benefits, the whole body grows, and we become spiritually mature. He says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of, of Christ. 
So you want to ask, why can't I just sit back on this little bottle and suck on it until Jesus comes? Surely there's no danger for me. I'm still getting milk, aren't I? Look at the very next verse. That we should no longer be children. That word children is the same word infant that we're looking at in our passage. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the deceit, uh, cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That's napios. It's an infant. We're not to be infants. Listen, why? Because they're unstable. He says they're tossed to and fro. You've seen an infant try to walk. They're trying to take those first steps. What are you doing as a parent? You're, like, you're, you're, doing, you're doing this kind of stuff because they're just unstable. This is the picture here. You're an infant. We don't, you don't want to be a spiritual infant. You don't want to be tossed to and fro. You're unstable. Imagine if you were an adult like this and you had to crawl everywhere. It's silly. Silly picture. The other thing is that they're easily, easily deceived. Look, they're tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. That is the truth of an infant. A baby will put absolutely anything into their mouth. Why? Because they cannot discern between a biscuit on the ground and a needle. Right? They'll put them both into their mouth. No discernment. Spiritual infants are that same way. They'll stuff any kind of spiritual food into their mouths. People are led away into all kinds of untruths today. Liberalism, pragmatism, psychology, apparent views of God, apparent views of Christ, weird views of the atonement, you name it. It's happening all over the place. But we're to grow into maturity. We're not to be infants. Look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head of Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's the purpose, to grow up in all things, not to be spiritual infants. Go back to our passage here in Hebrews. Look at verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That word, of full age, teleos is perfect, mature. The solid food, the things that are beyond the fundamentals, such as the, the teachings that he's going to give on Melchizedek, that's for the mature. You have to move past the basics. You have to move past the ABCs, past the Old Testament into order to, in order to understand these new things. And he equates being of full age with those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Interesting. The mature person has, has used. They've practiced using their senses. They can discern between good and evil. But new believers or even in uh, spiritual lazy people like he's addressing here, they, they lack that. Spiritual discernment in the church is a great problem. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says this, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, the church needs to discern between good and evil so that they can cast down arguments. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. But a lot of the churches today lack spiritual discernment. They don't know between good and evil. They're little babies putting anything into their mouth that comes. Spiritual infants, those who have not exercised their spiritual senses, they, they, cannot, they cannot discern these things. They're easy prey. Do you see the author's concern here? The spiritual infant does not lack information. No, he lacks the skill needed to make wise choices. That's what he lacks. Where does that come from? I'll end with this. Book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom, isn't it? Ladies have been going through that uh, last year. Book of Proverbs. I call it the book of skillful living. Everyone can live, everyone lives on this, but how many live well? well? That's the book of Proverbs. This is how to live life and live it well. And it comes with the wisdom of God. And Proverbs 2.10 says this, When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you. Discretion is, is the idea of, of making you ponder before sinning, making a wise choice. Understanding is that mental discipline which, which matures one for spiritual discernment. Where do those wonderful things, discretion and understanding, come from when wisdom enters your heart? How does wisdom enter your heart according to the book of, of Proverbs? 
The fear of the Lord, right. And, and Job says the same thing. In Job 28, he plays this whole, where does wisdom come from game? And he's not in, it's not in the seed and you can't purchase it kind of thing. But he knows the whole time. And he says in this, in Job 28, 28, and to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. You see, the spiritual infants who are entertaining the idea of going back into Judaism, they don't fear God, they fear who? Man, they want to go back. They're tired of the persecution. I can't take it anymore. I'm going to go back. And listen, they had the proper fear of God would not take them back. They also lack understanding. They can't discern between good and evil. They don't realize what they're going back to cannot actually do anything good for them. So he encourages them forward toward maturity, toward solid food. And that's what's going to take us into verse 1 next week. Look at it. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. He says, you can't hope to survive as an infant. You can't remain an infant. He says, you got to go forward. And guess what he doesn't do? I just love this. I'll end with this. He doesn't just then, okay, let me go teach you the basis again. He doesn't say, let me just back up. Guess what he's going to do in chapter 7? He's going to teach on Melchizedek. He's going to do it anyway, which is what we should be doing in the churches. Far too many churches are dumbing down their messages for the spiritual babies in the room. Our philosophy has always been in ministry, and it didn't come from ourselves. We adopted it from other wise people. Preach to the hot, even when we were doing youth ministry. We don't dumb it down for the people. We put it up here to those that are soaring, those that are doing well, those who are striving, pursuing Christ. Why? For the hope that the others will see that and want to that as well. I want that. But when we bring it down to this, we're going to have a whole room full of spiritual babies sucking on bottles, and we don't want that. Amen? So we're going on towards perfection. We'll look at the great warning that comes to us next week. Be prepared for that. (laughs) Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you that your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to pierce to division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, we need your word. We need discernment in this time in this age. Your church needs to be a discerning church, a full, a fully matured church. And so, Lord, even as we tackle these difficult things, Lord, and maybe there'll be people that sort of disagree on the take uh, that we're going on here with chapter 6, it, it, regardless of, of those things, Lord, what we want ultimately is we want to be fully matured, Lord, so that we don't slip away. There is so much in this world trying to take people away, deceive us into false things deceive us into untruth. And Lord, it takes the mature believer, the person that's spiritually hungry, pursuing the solid food, Lord, to to refrain from those things. So would you protect your church, Lord? Be with your people. Give them a hunger and a desire, Lord, for the solid things, the deep truths of your word, that we might remain spiritually mature to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing a closing song.